I want us to look this morning in Acts chapter 10, and I would invite you to take your Bible and go there with me. We're going to be looking at a lot of text. We're not going to read every verse. I'm going to do my best to summarize this pretty intricate story, and it will help you to have your Bible open in your lap. In Acts chapter 10, this is a very consequential chapter in the New Testament. God does something big. It's something He'd long planned to do before He did it. And since He did it, nothing has been the same. Everything has changed since the event or the events of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, this chapter begins with someone we've never, never met before. His name is Cornelius. And we're told in verse 2 that Cornelius, well we're told in verse 1, he's a Roman soldier. And in verse 2, he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So he's an upright man, he's a righteous man, but he's a Gentile. He's not part of God's historic people, the nation of Judah. He's not part of the family of Abraham. But he's a good man, and one day he receives, well, a visit from an angel. And this angel tells him, your prayers and your alms, this is verse 4, have ascended as a memorial before God. I want you to send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter back to see you. And when the angel departs, well, Cornelius wastes no time. Without hesitation, he sends three of his men, two servants and a soldier, to Joppa to fetch Peter. So we're introduced here to Cornelius, but this event, this story also includes someone we know quite well who was just mentioned. Simon, who was given by Jesus the name Peter. Now, in verse 9, the spotlight of the story shifts to Peter. Peter is in Joppa, and he goes up on his, or, or on the housetop where he is staying to pray. And he's hungry, and a meal is being prepared, but before he can go eat it, he falls into a trance. And God sends him a vision, and this is the vision. Verse 11, a sheet comes down, let down by its four corners upon the earth. Uh, verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and a voice came to Peter, rise Peter, kill and eat. But there were unclean animals on that sheet. There were animals that no Jewish person, no Jewish person who was concerned about following God's law would ever eat. And so Peter pushes back against this vision. He says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean, and I don't plan to start now, thinking he would be pleasing to the Lord. And the voice comes the second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now what does this vision that is delivered to Peter mean? Well, with the benefit of hindsight, we know from reading the rest of the New Testament witness that this vision means God is opening wide the gates of His kingdom to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to those outside the family of Abraham, to those outside the Jewish nation. Peter, in this text, receives this vision three times. Three times the sheet comes down. Three times there are all sorts of animals and creatures on it. Three times the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Three times, I guess, Peter says no. And three times, 
God says what God has made clean. Do not call common. Three times. Why three times? Well, most of you know that three, things happen in threes for Peter, don't they? This is sort of a recurring theme for Peter. How many times did he deny Jesus? Three times. Thank you, someone who answered. That's what, that's what you're supposed to do when somebody asks a question, right? You're supposed to answer. Yeah, good job. Three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then he looked at Jesus. Because Jesus had, had predicted it. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly over his denial of his Lord. How many times does Jesus post-resurrection in John chapter 21 ask him, Peter, do you love me? How many times? Three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? I said I loved you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Then tend my sheep. Then watch over the flock, Peter. And here, this vision comes to Peter three times. Why three times? Maybe another reason is, perhaps, and I'm speculating here, perhaps because God knows that Peter would struggle with this notion, with this idea that outsiders are now going to be insiders. That people outside Judaism, outside the nation of, of the Jewish nation, the family of Abraham, were going to be welcomed in as members in good standing in God's kingdom, as fellow brothers and sisters, as children of God. God knows that Peter, along with many, many other Jews, would struggle with this idea because they would struggle, among other things, with racial prejudice against people of a different nation or tribe or race being welcomed in, in full fellowship. Now, do we struggle with racial prejudice in our world today? And I'm speaking broadly. In our world, absolutely. Many a war has been fought over racial prejudice. Do we struggle with it in our nation? Yes. Do we struggle with it in the church? I'm afraid we have. And I'm afraid that we do. I think most would agree that we do, generally speaking. Although I am surprised by those who deny that it's a problem. I'm even a little shocked by those who would say, ah, it's not really a big deal. You know, it's being blown out of proportion. Most people who say that have skin that looks like mine. And I guess I should go ahead and say that I really regret that we have been trained by our culture to view almost everything through a political lens. We must talk about what are viewed as firebrand political issues like same-sex marriage or homosexuality, like abortion. I could go on. We know as God's people, as Christians, these are not political issues. These are issues that are about the battle between good and evil. And that's, what, that's why we have to talk about them. Racism, likewise, is about the battle between good and evil. Racism, I'm already losing people. Ra racism 
it's not a it's not a liberal or progressive issue. Racism shouldn't be viewed as a divisive or controversial issue. Racism is a biblical issue. It's a moral issue. It's a gospel issue. And we've got to talk about it. And it is a problem. And I guess my question is, how could it not be a problem in our country when for most of our nation's history, people who look like me have made people who have darker skin feel subordinate. Now, I have toured a castle on the west coast of Africa where people were thrown into dungeons after being stolen from their homes and tribes, and then they were shoved onto boats and carried like cargo to North America. The first slaves arrived on our shores 400 years ago. The Atlantic slave trade didn't cease until 200 years ago. It's 200 years. This was legal and ongoing. Slavery wasn't abolished until 150 years ago, and it was only around 50 to 60 years ago, within the lifetimes of many of us, that black folks in our country... Many parts of our country were guaranteed the right to vote, could attend schools with white children and drink out of the same water fountains and use the same public restrooms and visit the same establishments just 50 to 60 years ago. We rejoice at the progress, that we've, the positive changes that we've seen in our culture, but given our history, my question is, how could racial prejudice not be a problem for us still? Even though some of those events are in the distant past. And you know this history, you learn this history in school. And you know that history has a way, even distant history has a way of affecting the present, the present time. How could it not still be something that we struggle with? God gives this vision to Peter Three times. Three times the sheet comes down. Three times the animal's on it. Three times rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, don't anything that I have made clean, common. Three times Peter gets this vision. And yet, in the next verse, in verse 17, Peter is still inwardly perplexed. He's still confused. He's still trying to figure out the meaning of this thing. But then it all begins to make sense because, and you can start following along here. I'm going to try to paraphrase this. Starting at verse 17, Peter is uh, thinking about, reflecting on, trying to figure out this vision when these three men from Cornelius arrive. And the Spirit tells him, go downstairs. There are three men here. They're going to ask you to come with them. Don't hesitate in going with them. So Peter comes down and says, hey, I'm the one that you're looking for. Why have you come? And they say, Cornelius sent us. And Peter says, why don't you stay with me? And the next day, verse 23, verse 23, he gets up, he goes with them, and on the following day, he gets to where Cornelius is in Caesarea, so he travels from Joppa to Caesarea. When Peter gets them, Cornelius falls down at his feet and begins worshiping him, and Peter, in verse 26, says, get up, because I'm just a man too. I'm not worthy of your worship. The one that I worship is worthy of your worship, but I'm not. I'm just a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm just His apostle, His disciple, so you stand up. And then in verse 28, there, there are several people gathered in Cornelius' Gentile household, and he says to them, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew 
to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. You know it is against the law of God according to the Old Testament for me to be here, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I've got this verse up on the screen. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I know that God is on the move, that things are changing, that what was part of the old covenant is passing away, and so I am here at the direction of my Lord. It all begins to make sense, and a little later, Peter starts preaching. Look in verses 34 and 35. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. I've got this up on the screen. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, entry into the kingdom of God is not based on race or nationality or ethnicity. It is based on faith in Jesus Christ. I get it. Peter says, I get it. And then we read this, just this astounding account of how the Holy Spirit is poured out on these Gentiles. And the Jews there are like, I can't believe the Holy Spirit has been poured out on people who are not of our ethnicity, who are not a part of God's historic people. And Peter says, listen, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, poured out on them. How could we not, or how could we withhold water for baptizing so they're baptized and God has acted in an amazing way in swinging wide the gates of his kingdom open to non-Jews. And so the gospel takes a leap beyond the boundaries of Judaism and now Gentiles are included as well. And this had been long planned by God, spoken of by Jesus, and now enacted by the Holy Spirit and witnessed by Peter and others. And we sit here 2,000 years later grateful that God has made a way for us to be a part of his kingdom. And Peter gets it. You know, he gets, he, he gets it. He, we hear what he has to say. He understands after initial resistance. Now he understands. And maybe you're here thinking, I get it too, Joseph. I don't need a sermon on prejudice. On racial prejudice, I understand. I get that one race is not superior to another. I, we all know that. I get that God's kingdom is multiracial and multicultural. In fact, I don't know why you're preaching this sermon. Look at the progress that we've made in this country. Why? In our country, we've even had a black president and first lady. Now, I didn't agree with him about much, politically speaking. But, I mean, that's progress, right? So don't dredge up the past. Don't talk about it. A lot of people want to say, don't talk about it. You'll make it worse. So just shh. stop talking about it. But, you know, we don't do that with any other sin. In fact, as Christians, we believe we've got to, if there is a problem, if there is a sin problem, we've got to talk about it. We've got to drag it into the light. We've got to expose it so we can acknowledge it, so we can be aware of it, so we can repent of it. This is no different. We've got to talk about it if we want to improve and, and get better. And of course, we've made progress, but... As any other aspect of our faith, we say, hey, I understand something, but I want to understand it more. I've grown in my faith. I am more devoted now than I was, but I, I, I need to keep growing. I need to keep becoming more devoted. It's no different with this issue. But maybe you say, hey, I get it. I get it. 
And we look at Acts 10 and we think, oh, Peter's got it. But here's the thing. Peter didn't get it. Not fully. How do I know that? Well, keep your place in Acts chapter 10, but go with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. A letter of Paul. Now watch this. This is sometime after the events of Acts chapter 10. Watch this, verse 11. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now you think about, you think about what that says. An apostle of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, stands condemned. For before certain men, this is why, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, the central figure in the early church, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you even though you're a Jew, are living like a Gentile. In other words, Peter had put away a lot of the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant because he was now a Christian. But yet you, Paul says, are requiring Gentiles to live like Jews. What are you thinking? What had happened here? Well, we don't know for sure, but apparently there was a group who came along who said, Listen, maybe Jews and Gentiles can be a part of the same church, but they certainly can't eat together because these Gentiles don't know about Jewish table laws and they don't know about Jewish food regulations. So we think it's best if the Jews ate over here and the Gentiles ate over here and Peter bought into it. And Peter began banning Gentiles from his table. And Paul comes along and he opposes Peter to his face. And that's astounding. If you think about it, Paul basically says, Peter, I don't care if you're one of the original 12. Peter, I don't care if you walked with Jesus for three years. I don't care that you saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't care that you saw him on the cross. I don't care that you saw him after he was raised from the dead. You're wrong. Peter needed a wake-up call. Peter, one of the 12. Peter has to be reminded again about his prejudice. He needed the vision, not once, not twice, but three times. And then he needed a stern rebuke from Paul. A good thing Peter was humble enough to receive that. And it goes to show, to me, that we need important lessons repeated for us over and over again because sometimes I can have a really thick skull and I'm a slow learner and it takes me a long time to come around to the truth of some matters we need the same we need to read the same texts over and over again it's not good enough just to read through the bible once we got to read the same passages over and over again because as we do, we see things that we didn't see the first time. And we are more developed in our faith and we're better able to receive what the text is teaching. And we need to hear the same lessons and sermons over and over again. So you're going to start hearing me repeat some sermons again. Not because I'm lazy, but because we need to hear the same ones over again. I'm just kidding. I'll try to change up a few things about them before I preach them to you again. But, you know, generations come along and they have these questions 
And sometimes older folks will say, no, no, we've already covered that. We already solved that. We already resolved that issue. We can't have that attitude. We've got to teach them what we have already discovered to help them grow in their faith. We've got to rediscover the truth with each succeeding generation. We've got to teach the young why we believe what we believe on a host of biblical issues and doctrines. We've got to cover this stuff over and over and over again. And I tell you what, I need to participate in the Lord's Supper every week. The New Testament church gives us the example of participating in the Lord's Supper every week, weekly. And I need it. You know, some groups take the Lord's Supper once a month or once quarterly, and you'll even hear people say, hey, if we took it every week, don't you think it would sort of lose its meaning? No. I need to taste the bread. I need to drink the cup every week. I need my mind to go back to the cross. I need to consider the body of Christ, meaning the body of believers. I need this reminder every week. Once is not enough. Once a month is not enough. Once a quarter is not enough. I need to participate in the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. I've got to relearn this lesson each week. We don't fully learn a lesson upon the first hearing. We need it repeated until the truth gets into the marrow of our bones, until it makes its way into our hearts. And God can use what is happening in our world today to remind us of an important lesson if we are willing to listen. And you may say, oh, I'm listening. I'm listening. And I'm watching the news and I've seen the rioting and the looting and the violence. And all of that is terrible. And we denounce it and we condemn it. And as Christians, we believe that violence must not beget violence. It is not the right way. And some of it has been perpetrated by folks who are simply opportunists, who are bad actors. People who just want to kill and steal and destroy. And we're thankful for our police officers who serve us and keep us safe and protect us. Do you know who hates police brutality and racism even more than all of us? Police officers. The vast majority of whom are good men who are serving our communities and our country and we should be grateful. We have wonderful police officers right here in our community. But a lot of these protests have been peaceful, including the one that occurred here in our county yesterday. And there have been meetings and there have been prayer vigils. And underneath these gatherings, for many black folks, there is frustration and there's anger and there's pain that's been building up for centuries and for generations. Are we listening? And you say, our racist past is behind us. We put that stuff in the rearview mirror. I heard a story from the late Christian church preacher, Fred Craddock. He says, I grew up on a cotton patch in West Tennessee. Those were his words. And he says, I was riding along in a wagon. My uncle was driving the wagon. We were taking loose hay back to the barn. And on the back of the wagon with me was, at that time, one of my best friends, an elderly black man named Will. And Will said something to me, but I couldn't hear Will because the, the wagon was sort of squeaky and I wanted to hear what he had to say. So I said, sir... And he said his next conscious memory was waking up on the ground after his uncle had dealt him a blow 
opening his eyes and seeing his uncle who said to him, so help me, I will kill you dead if I ever again hear you call a black man, sir. But he didn't say black man. Do you think that, don't you think it takes some time to undo that kind of thinking? Do you think those perceptions and the pain that they cause simply just dissipate, disappear overnight? This past these wounds in our country, they run deep. And every now and then they're ripped open as they have been today. Are we listening? Are we listening? And what's more, and it's not pleasant, and maybe this is making you uncomfortable, but I tell you what, if we get together, if every time we get together and you hear a sermon and it just makes you feel good and it makes you comfortable, well, then I'm not doing my job. And we're not doing our job and we're not looking in God's Word because sometimes God's Word steps on our toes and makes us uncomfortable so that we are forced to grow. And the harsh truth is our racist past isn't completely behind us. It isn't. Just ask the black minister I'm connected with on Facebook who was seeking a preaching job in 2013. In 2013. He sends a resume to a Texas congregation, an elder calls him who is excited to fly the whole family out to meet with, with, with the congregation. He asks the minister to send a picture of his family so that he can show the congregation who's coming to preach, who's coming to try out for the job. Well, not five minutes after the email is sent, the, the elder calls back and says, now I'm not a racist, but... And then he explains that the area and the congregation may not yet be ready a black preacher, he said, I couldn't tell that you were black over the phone or I would have just told you then. If you don't think that racial prejudice is still a problem, just talk to a black person. And you will hear stories like this one and experiences to which you cannot relate. And I'm not saying talk to a radical person, talk to an extremist, talk to a liberal I'm saying talk to, talk to someone that you know and love. Talk to a friend or an acquaintance. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Are we listening? Because love starts with listening and learning. And maybe you say, I'm not a racist. <laughs> maybe not. I, don't I really don't believe that anybody sitting out before me today would say anything like that elder. I really don't. We have black people in our congregation, and if a black family came in, in the back door as I speak, you would welcome them with open arms. I know it because I know you. I know the love that you have for others. But if you're anything like me, and this is when we get honest with ourselves, if you're anything like me, you still struggle with prejudice in your heart. And I am even on occasion inclined to judge a man by the color of his skin. And I struggle with apathy and with indifference over the pain of others. And I don't follow the Bible's teaching about mourning with those who mourn. There are people who are mourning and who are upset and who are frustrated. And I'm not listening as I should be listening. Are you listening?
I think this is a battle between good and evil, and I think Satan wants us to deny the prejudice within our hearts, and I think he wants us to pretend that it's not a problem, but I think God wants us to repent of it. Are you listening? Are you listening to him? Now, I'm about to tell you a lot of stuff that you, don't, that, that you already know, but it bears repeating. In God's kingdom, there is no room for the evil of racism. In Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch is baptized by Philip. Well, he, is, he was almost undoubtedly a black man. And when he came up out of those waters in Christ, you know this, he became every part your brother in Christ. And in Acts chapter 13, a few chapters after this, one of the leaders in the Antioch church, one of the leaders named Simeon, is described as being dark-complected. One of the leaders. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, says there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Galatians 3, 28, and you can look in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, about the oneness that we enjoy in Christ. And John's vision of heaven includes a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, worshiping God as one. As one, And I need to be reminded, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded, not three times like Peter, but 300 times and many more. And so I say today, remind me of these truths. Remind me, dear Lord. Because there's still work to do. There's work to do in our homes. That's where it begins, doesn't it? There's work to do in our homes in teaching our children about kindness and equality. There's work to do, obviously, in our nation. And there's work to do in the church. Because on Sunday mornings, we still experience what is one of the most segregated hours in the entire week. So there's work to do, obviously, in building bridges and bringing about reconciliation. But ultimately, the only one who can fix all this is Jesus. Now, if I was in a predominantly black congregation, that would have gotten an amen. The, let me try it again. The only one who can fix all this is Jesus. Would you agree, church? The only one who can fix all this is Jesus. Trump can't fix it. Biden can't fix it. Congress can't fix it. Mayors and governors can't fix it. Not even marches and protests can fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. Jesus is the only one who can heal our nation, who can save our world. Jesus is the only one who can transform His church. Jesus is the only one who can change my heart. And I must submit in all things, in all things, to His Lordship. So my question to you is, do you need to submit to His Lordship today? Do you need to come and make Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you need Jesus to bring you into His kingdom that is filled with all sorts of people, but what binds us together is our common faith and our trust in the God, the only one who can save. If you haven't confessed that beautiful name, if you haven't turned away from your sins, if you haven't been baptized, so that those can be washed away. We invite you to do that today. If you're struggling in any way, if you need the prayers of this congregation, of this family of God's people, we invite you to come and we, we would be honored 
to pray for you and to pray with you to the one who can truly help you. Do you need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ today? If you do, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?